to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Everyone says find a need and fill it, but today's guest identified a hole in the market that's worth literally billions of dollars. Billions are lost because of poor transactions people have with customer service centers. Mark Bernstein, founder of Balto, created a way to solve this enormous problem, and it's super easy to implement. With online commerce and the overall growth of call centers, Balto is a company that's poised for amazing growth. So today we have with us a very, very successful young entrepreneur who is absolutely killing it in his particular field. His name is Mark Bernstein. He is CEO of Balto, uh, which is a company that helps contact centers dramatically enhance their performance. It is an amazing niche. Mark, welcome to Street Smart Success. Roger, thank you for having me. Yeah. And uh, thanks for, I know you're super busy. Uh, you have a hard stop in about an hour and uh, we will abide by that. Before we get into you know how you wound up developing this ingenious niche, why well, I have a little bit of background kind of so that I understand it. But before we get into that, uh, we had a nice little schmooze before we jumped on here and I hit record. I know you're in St. Louis and I know you went to Wash U. Are you from St. Louis originally and where are you from and where did you go to school and all that stuff? I actually grew up in the Washington, D.C. area um, on the Maryland side, about one mile outside of D.C. in this uh, small town called Chevy Chase. And a lot of people are familiar with Bethesda because that's where the Naval uh, Hospital is and that's where uh, Walter Reed is and Chevy Chase is, is right next to that, right on the side of DC. And um, I grew up my entire life there and then came out to St. Louis for school. I went to Wash U in St. Louis for my undergrad and I ended up going to the business school and studying entrepreneurship, marketing, and got a minor in psychology. So couldn't have been more perfect in terms of what I wanted to learn and what I wanted to do. And after I left Wash U, the school does a phenomenal job at uh, syncing the uh, new grads up with opportunities in the city because WashU recognizes that if, if we want to continue to have uh, the success that we're having and be a particularly prestigious institution, then we need to make sure that the city that we're in is also thriving. So they do a really good job of uh, syncing up their their students with companies in St. Louis. So I, I ended up uh, going to a couple startups in St. Louis. And after I had done two startups, I met one of the other founders uh, there, uh, Chris Contes, and, and that started uh, what we eventually uh, launched into Balto. I see. I'm going to take a, a step back, a digression. And um, I think I noted the answer to this question, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to ask it is concurrent with when you were at Wash U, you had the business doorstep fitness in DC. I'm concluding that you were you doing that in the summers because that's where you grew up or because how, how did you do it in DC when you're also in school in St. Louis? That's how it started. It started with, uh, I was a senior in high school and uh, I was one of those kids that was particularly excited about uh, fitness and excited about lifting weights and getting huge. And, um, you know, I, I, the first time I had the opportunity to become a personal trainer, you can get certified as early as 18. I got my certification and then uh, I had it and said, well, what am I going to do with this thing? I, I built up um, a training business there where I would train clients over the summer, but then I was getting feedback from the clients that said, 
Mark, we really love working with you over the summers, but then we're kind of left to our own devices for nine months out of the year. Uh, can you figure out some way to help us with continuity? So we ended up building out a, a business there, which was a network of personal trainers that would go directly to your home office or local park, doorstep fitness. So we ended up building, we had um, five full-time trainers on staff and over a hundred clients at our, at our peak. And that's how, you know, throughout the year, um, I'd be able to, you know, go to school in St. Louis. And uh, I had my business partner was back in the DC area. So he could do some of the in-person management as well. <laughs> so, so you really were a, a dyed in the wool entrepreneur, like from the get go. So that's the yet hundred clients that's, and then you figured out, well, you know, what do you do the other nine months of the year? So that's, that's incredible. Yeah, but you know, it really was an accident. I think it's almost always in some ways an accident. Uh, some people have that vision early. It says, I want to go build something. And this is what I want to build. And I've never had that. Um, I've had the, um, where I kind of fall into a problem or fall into an opportunity and I, you know, try to patch it up myself. Usually first, that's the bias is, well, can I just put a patch over this? Can I fix it? And, you know, in that example, can I just do personal training on my own? And then that, that usually, waterfalls and cascades into other you know, bigger opportunities. So I certainly, when we started Doorstep Fitness, I, I put those um, flyers up in the park, you know, where you can tear off the little end that had my phone number. So that's, that's how it started. I was trying to get some clients over the summer and then it ended up growing much bigger than that. So does the business still exist? It does not. It does not. And there's only so many places where you know, I, I could devote my attention at once. And when I was, uh, you know, working in tech sales uh, in St. Louis after I graduated, I uh, had to make a decision. Said, what do I want to prioritize, and what's the best use of of my time? So uh, we ended up uh, rolling that back, and uh, it was sad. It was, you know, I still felt accomplished and proud because the that that did get me through uh, college, and um, I'll always appreciate that. But it wasn't you know, sustainable or scalable enough in a way that, you know, or big enough that I, I think I could have gotten a major sale out of it, even if I wanted to. So when you say got you through college, are you saying you paid your tuition with that money? I did. That's impressive. Yeah, I think that used to be the standard, right? <laughs> Everyone used to pay for their own college and then uh, times changed and college got more expensive. Well, it was even just pretty expensive even then. You're, you're talking about as recent as 2011. It was still, Wash U was still expensive even as recent as that or as recent as that. Yeah, very true. Wow. And so just a complete irrelevant detail, but I, of course, have to ask the question, do you still work out? I do. I do. I, I run about three to four days a week. And during the coronavirus, I did a whole bunch of at-home workouts. One of my favorite things is um, I've been um, a fanatical proponent of the TRX, you know, those straps that you can hook up to your door and you can uh, do pulls, you can do push-ups off them, you can do bicep curls or whatever you want to do. So their whole pitch back in the day was that that's how the Navy SEALs train when they're in, when they're on deployment is they train by hooking this thing up to whatever they can find and, and working, doing body weight exercises off that. And I figured if it's good enough, for the Navy SEAL is good enough for me. Absolutely. That was, it was founded by an ex Navy SEAL. Uh, I don't know his name, but he's the company's based in San Francisco. Do you lift any weights or is it just all TRX? Yeah. Uh, I haven't lifted weights for a little while. When I was in college, I uh, loved powerlifting, you know, the big lifts, the squat, bench, and deadlift. And 
I really enjoyed that and, and did some weightlifting competitions in college. I never won, but I, I certainly uh, surprised people. You know, from there, you know, again, it's about prioritization. And um, I found it harder and harder to get into the gym and do the deadlifts. So uh, the coronavirus kind of uh, finally put the nail in the coffin, if you will, where I said, I can't even go to a gym without totally changing up my flow and how I do things. I might as well, you know, shift to the in home and, and try a little bit of a more calisthenic style and more cardio and a little less strength training. So I, I did some deadlifts yesterday and I'm not going to embarrass myself by telling you the amount of weight, but I'm going to ask you. So what was your uh, one rep max for deadlift? I got to around 375, which if you, if you don't, if you're not familiar with lifting, you go, oh, wow, 375. If you're familiar with lifting, you go, come on. You know, I thought it was going to be more, but let me follow up. See, with- I told you. <laughs> So, uh, but, but, but people have different strengths and weaknesses, yeah. you know what I mean? So the last personal question I'm going to ask before we go on to the incredible business you're building is what was your one rep max for bench? Oh, geez. Do I have to disclose that? <laughs> you have to disclose it. 285. All right. Well, 285 bench though is like, that feels bigger than, than a deadlift because deadlift, it just seems like it's easier such a bad choice of terms when you're talking about 375. I mean, and my numbers don't even come close to that, but I'm not going to disclose them because I, I have that as my priority, as my prerogative is, is, is the host. So let's talk about Alto. Here's what I understand about what you're doing. And when I am completely wrong, you're going to correct me. So here's what I do get is that call centers or contact centers internally at large organizations are peopled by, I don't know what's the right term to not sound, you know, like I have a feeling of superiority, but they're not people that went to, you know, wash you business school. Let's just put it that way. So they're either minimum wage workers or maybe a little bit more. They're not the most skilled workers. And so as a result, if these people are not trained or if they're not doing a good job, then it could be costing that company just millions and millions of dollars. And it is imagining a perpetual issue and problem for companies, frankly, all over the globe. And what I'm gleaning is you figured out a solution to basically elevate their performance and create an amazing solve for that around software. And then I'll let you tell me, am I completely off or what degree or you could take it from there? Sure. You you got a lot of that right. So to start, let's look at um, the the user base or the customer base or figure out uh, what kind of people are out there. And we can look at the macroeconomic shifts that are going on in this country right now and how millions of people are transitioning from the labor economy where they've done uh, manufacturing jobs or they've done other types of labor jobs. And those jobs are in many ways going away. And they're transitioning from that to the service economy, which are things that you might consider more, quote, white collar, things that require more professional skills and more communication skills and organization skills. And it's not their fault, right? When they went to work, they went to work thinking, uh, this is a good job. It pays well. I can, I can take care of my family. So that's what I'm going to do. And then boom, that job disappears. So they say, okay, hold on. I, I got to figure out something. And it looks like the call center is advertising. They're paying, you know, 12 bucks an hour. And that's a, about what I was making. Not quite the same, but it's a good start. So why don't I, I do that? 
So there's millions of people with that profile that are that are now uh, starting to work in call centers. And if you think about it, you know, you used to when you had to re- return a shirt, you return the shirt by taking the shirt back to the store. And then you talk to the representative and they said, what's wrong with it? And you, and you said, well, it's not fit or, you know, there's a, a hole in it or I don't like the style or, or whatever. And that's how you do your return. But now it's all online. So let's say it's bigger than a shirt. Let's say you want to return a TV and you can't always just put the thing back in the box and send it back to wherever you bought it. Sometimes you have to have some sort of return label. You have to have some sort of conversation. And people are calling into call centers in mass to handle all of their sales requests and their service requests. So when that happens, they're calling in and then on the other line, picture that person who was doing something else their entire life. And now they're working in a call center and they're doing their best to pick up these skills and very quickly learn to communicate in a way that they've never had to communicate. You know, very organized, very buttoned up. You don't have, you don't do that unless you have to. So, but when they don't, it often leads to this disjointed customer experience where first of all, the customer wasn't getting what they expected. They didn't hear quote, the professionalism come out from the other side. They didn't uh, feel like the other person had control of the conversation and was taking a step back and listening and exploring and digging in and asking questions to understand the need. Um, or if they were frustrated, they didn't feel like the other person was maintaining their cool and helping resolve the issue and, and work through it. Those are the sort of scenarios that are happening on the phone millions of times every single day. When it goes well, often, there's dollars in the bank. It's a sale that gets closed. Uh, maybe you're purchasing a new security system for your home and uh, you need to call in and figure out, you know, what are the specs on this thing? How do I set it up? Can I have someone come install it? What is the service cost? And so you're calling in to figure that out and you got a representative on the line or maybe it's service. You're trying to return a mattress. You bought one of those big mattresses online and they have a free return policy and you wanted to, you know, to take them up on that for whatever reason. So that's that's those are the sort of conversations that's happening when they go well. It's dollars in the bank or happy customers or referrals or new leads. And when they don't go well, it's often frustrated customers, dollars missed, and in some cases, compliance problems and lawsuits. There's a whole bunch of new rules, constantly evolving rules about what you can and can't say on the phone and how you have to interact with the customer. And especially if you're new to the job, you forget sometimes. So what we built is this technology that in real time is analyzing everything that the representative is saying as they are saying it, analyzing everything the customer is saying as the customer is saying it. And in real time, giving that representative little text recommendations on their computer screen about how they can be as effective in that call as possible. Did you just say it's done by text? Yes, speech to text. And then when I say text recommendations, what I, what I mean is it's, uh, it's visual. It pops up on your computer screen. It's not like you have someone talking your ear. You don't have Siri being like, try to close this customer. You don't have anything like that. So how specific, it, it just sounds mind boggling that you've created this. And, and, and I guess the reason I say that is it just seems First of all, that every single company is different, right? So it could be a mattress, it could be anything that you could purchase. It could be TV, it could be software, it could be anything under the sun. Um, and so it seems like the level of customization per client would be vast. And so just the notion of being able to to do that from a from a programming standpoint, custom for each client would seem to be just a tremendous undertaking. That's one of the most powerful things about the technology 
is we made it simple and easy for anybody to customize. So you don't need to know how to code. You don't need to know how to write AI algorithms. You can go right into the, the, what we call playbook designer where you put together all your content and say, all right, on the sales floor today, I wish everyone were asking the customer, how did you hear about us? I wish. Why is everyone not doing it? I'm going to go in the playbook designer. I'm going to type in, uh, how did you hear about us? And I'm going to hit publish and boom, right there. You're now going to start hearing everybody on your sales floor asking that question because it's coming up right there in the application. That's how quick it is to customize. That's how easy it is. And if it weren't, then it, it would lose all of the power of the application. That's a self-serve uh, function where the client does that internally. Oh, yeah. And think about the reverse. You know, Do you want an AI saying, I have analyzed all of your calls and I automatically generated a question that I'm now going to be feeding to all your sales reps without you having the chance to say anything about it? Hope you like it. You don't want that, right? And, and you can see all of these uh, cases online in which AI has gone uh, rogue. There's this famous Microsoft bot called Tay. And long story short is, is Tay was picking up the, the user conversations or the, the different conversations of, of folks on Twitter and adjusting its responses based on the folks on Twitter. Long story short is people started messing with the bot by writing, uh, you know, terrible racist things and anti-Semitic things and the bot started mimicking it. Um, so they had to shut it down, I believe, after a day because it was just doing what it was programmed. And, you know, we want to make sure that in this next evolution of AI, that we don't, you know, look at where we are today and say, let's just hit the AI go button and turn it rogue and let it do whatever it wants. We need this human in the loop system where while we are going through this huge exploration of how to use this new technology, how to use AI, that people are still in charge, that the AI is is analyzing data in ways people could, never could. It's doing it faster than people ever could. It is serving up information and insights that people can use to make their lives and businesses better. And then the people get to choose. The people get to make a decision to say, now that I have seen this from the AI, what do I want to do? And Balto firmly believes in the power of the individual. When you conceived this, was there anything like it on the market? To my knowledge, there wasn't. So how did you think of it? Uh, I thought of it by experiencing the problem in a way that anyone in sales and anyone in services experienced. And that is, I would go into uh, my sales manager's office for coaching. And at my time, at that time, I was at a startup, about 30 people, and the sales manager was the CEO as well. So very busy. And I would go in his office and we would pull up the call recordings and he would give... 15, 20 minutes of really solid coaching advice. He would say, you know, make sure you're asking better discovery questions in your call. If someone asks you about price, I don't just go, okay, sure, here's the price, but instead first confirm they like the product. Do all those things that uh, for anyone who's been in sales for a while, you go, oh yeah, of course. And uh, I would hear this advice and I'd say, oh my God, that was a great coaching session. I'd leave his office, I'd get to the call and I'd have that feeling where you hang up the phone and you put your head in your hand and you say, shoot, I just blew that. I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew I was supposed to ask that question. I knew I was supposed to not just give out price right away. I knew I was supposed to do, but I didn't do it. Then that, that feeling that everyone had led me to realize that there is a difference, a gap 
between having an insight of what you should do, knowledge of the best thing to do, and then executing on that knowledge in the moments you need to execute. Everyone's focused on the insight. Everyone's trying to reverse engineer the secret words that if you say them in the perfect order, automatically call, <laughs> cause the customer to fall over and give you their money. And that combination doesn't exist. We're people. We're more complex than that. So there's certainly insights to be had um, on the analytics side and, and, and discovering what the best thing is to do. There certainly is. And A-B testing can help us get there. But there's an equally large, if not larger opportunity on now that you know all these things you want people to do, can you help them actually do it? So I had had that pain and I actually created an Excel macro where I could type into the macro any topic that was coming up on my calls. So some would ask, how does your solution implement? And I type in implementation and pop up my talking points for implementation. And Chris, the other founder, uh, worked with me uh, at that company. We worked together and he saw me doing this on one of my calls and was like, Mark, I love the creativity, but that's a terrible idea. I was like, what do you mean? Do you see this macro? This is the coolest thing we've ever done. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm watching you on your calls and you're spending all of your time and all your attention typing into this macro. You're missing everything that the customer is saying. If you want to have a solution like this, it needs to be passive. It needs to feed you the information. You can't be always going out to get it. So that was actually the genesis. Um, I had then one of my other really close friends, known, known him since we were six years old, uh, Davidson, come out and visit me in St. Louis. Uh, he said, I, I haven't seen you in a couple months. Let's hang out. And came out to St. Louis. I showed him this macro. And just so happens that uh, you get lucky sometimes and your best friends are brilliant engineers. And, and I come back at the end of the day, he said, hey, Mark, I uh, hooked up your macro to Google Speech API and uh, I built you a passive system. Hope you like it. And from there, uh, Davidson, Chris, and I um, all kind of looked at each other. We weren't all in the room, but we could, you know, you, you, you know, you, you look at each other. And we said, uh, we think we have something here. So that was the genesis of, of, of how we ended up developing this tool. I am floored only because the magnitude of what you put your finger on. It's like you're talking billions and billions of dollars and more billions. By the way, even before, you know, the uh, what you were describing when we first started talking about the macro changes are in our economy with manufacturing jobs going away, but now even even before e-commerce, I mean, this has always been a real gap. And so the scope of what you put your finger on is just, um, I'm spellbound. So what can go wrong, I guess, in the implementation on, on the client side? Yeah. So I'll first talk about a little bit about what I think we put our finger on. And it is, it's at many places been unintentional. You know, originally it was you know, helping um, folks who are setting uh, meetings, sales meetings, make sure that they overcome the objections and not talk too much because they're two of the biggest problems that everyone has when they're trying to set a sales appointment is they talk themselves out of it. And then as we look at this, we say, okay, we call the concept real-time guidance. Where else can real-time guidance be applied? Well, it can be applied to sales folks, it can be applied to service folks, it can be applied to debt collections. And okay, but that's everyone who's having the customer interaction what if you could apply it to the manager? What if you could give the manager real-time information on what everybody on their sales and service floor is saying as they're actually saying it? What could you tell that manager that would help them jump in and do a better job? And then 
what could you tell the executives who are running the organization, what they want to know about their organization now, not what they want delivered to them in a report one week from now that is hopefully still relevant, but what, what do they want to know now, now, now? that they could go and make changes and implement and make their organization better. So as we continue to explore what real-time guidance can do, the use gets bigger and bigger, where ultimately we see it being as big as the CRM space, as big as you know the CCAS space, contact center software space. Um, we see it being as big as that, and that's you know over a $25 billion market opportunity. And the simple reason is, what sort of things do we want to know in real time as they're actually happening. You can make a laundry list that's really long and the sort of thing that Balto can analyze and deliver while uh, in the moments that actually matter. In terms of what can go wrong, you know, it, it has that classic technology problem that the CRM space took you know, maybe a decade to get over. In fact, they're still working on it now. And the problem that you hear has a, a phrase behind it, and that is garbage in, garbage out. And What's happening is, you know, if you are in charge of your sales organization, your service organization, we are giving you the ability to recommend to everyone in real time while they're on their calls, the exact things that you wish they would do and say and how they communicate and how they respond better be good. So especially early on in the organization, um, you know, we didn't have best practices developed yet because and we're working with customers, we just developed this technology no one had before. How do you develop a best practice if no one's ever practiced it? So, um, you know, we wouldn't have enough guidance for our customers to say, you know, here's the best way to set it up and here's where you can go, uh, go right and go wrong. So what we ended up doing is we developed what I am so proud to say is, is a world class customer success organization. And I can't state enough the importance of customer success. Those are folks who are proactively talking to customers about what's going well, what's not going well. And before the customer even has a problem saying, aha, I'm seeing what you're doing and I can tell that you're likely to fall into this trap in three to four weeks unless we make a change now. So here's the change I want to propose. That's what our customer success managers are doing. And that change um, has dramatically improved the effectiveness of Balto for our customers where consistently um, folks who are using Balto will get a 20 to 35% lift over the folks who are not. So this this success organization is you're saying is your your internal organization that deals with the clients to kind of oversee what they're doing proactively to say, hey, maybe you guys should do A, B, or C or D to, you know, enhance what you're doing. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. Yeah. Amazing. And so how many clients do you have now? That's one of the numbers that we don't announce. And there's a, a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I, I can say that we're really proud of our client list. And in a press release that'll be coming out in not too long from now, uh, we will be announcing the number. So yeah, I'm going to ask the question anyway, because you're going to give me the same answer, <laughs> but I'm going to ask it anyway. Just ballpark, what do you do in revenue? Same answer. Sorry, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> I plead the fifth. <laughs> you know what? I can't complain because you told me how much you benched and deadlift. And so I don't want to push it. I have to feel like you gave me more information than I deserved. Yeah, we were off to a rocky start as is. And here you go asking the revenue. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you at liberty to say how many employees you have? 
Yeah, absolutely. We are uh, right now uh, 45 uh, Baltonians. That's that's full-time folks at Balto. And where does the name Balto come from? Uh, are you familiar with the uh, story of Balto or even the Disney movie? I'm not. Cool. Well, I get to be the one to tell you. It's based on a real story. And that is, it was the year 1925. I'll make this quick. It was the year 1925 and there was an epidemic of um, this um, you know, disease in uh, the northwest corner of Alaska, Nome, small uh, Eskimo town. Uh, it was the epidemic was called diphtheria, and it would have wiped out the entire town in a matter of weeks. And the closest antitoxin for this very rare disease was in Anchorage, um, which was 674 miles away. So they're trying to figure out how do we get the antitoxin to Nome. Well, they couldn't fly it. Uh, with a plane because the engines were would totally freeze back then. The engines weren't weren't the same uh, quality they are now. You couldn't take it by boat because the seas were totally frozen. So they had to use a relay team of dog sled teams, twenty different dog sled teams, uh, to take the antitoxin from Anchorage all the way to Nome. And Balto was the lead dog in the last team to bring that to- the antitoxin into the town. The analogy there is that. Balto was the leader of the pack. He is using his sense of skill to scout ahead for danger, help everyone in the pack stay on track. And but Balto wasn't in charge. Balto wasn't like, "Hey, everyone, we're going to go to Nome." I, I really, I think I want to help out these kids. Instead, the musher, the person, the human, is in charge, and that's the relationship that we want people to have with AI, which is that you as the person are in charge. The AI has um, abilities and senses that we simply don't, and you work together in order to accomplish something uh, really spectacular. That's very, very detailed and specific, and it looks like some brain work went into even thinking of up the name. I mean, my company is called Becker Media, so that tells you how much imagination I have. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, the original name before it was Balto, it was going to be, we were this close, we didn't do it, we were this close to calling it sales prompter six, like SEAL <laughs> team six. And uh, there we are. And we're looking to buy domains. We're thinking about buying sp6.com. And some friend of mine who to this day, thank you, Sam, was like, Mark, SP6 isn't going to fly. It's pretty bad. So uh, we we got pushed into uh, doing a renaming and, and that's how we ended up coming up with Balto. So again, uh, I wish I could say that I had that foresight that said, oh, beautiful, we need a, a name that's, that's the, the, also the name of a heroic dog, but, but it wasn't me. So was the domain available? Uh, we own balto.ai. Got it. So, so somebody had balto.com? Yeah. Wow. And they, and they didn't think to take AI? They, they did not. Um, I, I think that the .ai domain names had pretty much just come out, or at least they were just starting to get attention. In uh, what company is Balto.com? Uh, I do not know. I do not know. It's one of those parked domains, I think. And you didn't try to buy it? No, no. It's, uh, you know, the one word domains are, are, are really expensive. And, you know, we think let's focus on the domain we have and, you know, tackle the biggest challenges that the business is facing. I don't think the biggest challenge is forking over six figures for Balto.com. Let's get this product in the hands of as, of as many people as humanly possible. That's what we want to be focused on. I like the way you think. So you're saying it could potentially be a $25 billion market, which I could see that. 
how are you capitalized? Are you going to at some point need to attempt to raise capital to achieve growth or what does that look like? Yeah, in our in our three and a half years as a company, almost four, um, we have capital been capitalized completely from our initial bootstrapping and 4.2 million in seed funding. That's it. That's how we've gotten where we've gotten. And um, in the very near future, there will be a future rounds uh, of financing coming out that we'll be very proud to announce. But we have done a lot, a lot, a lot with uh, very little capital. And by the way, I kind of think it's how it should be. You know, I I don't think you're allowed to beat your chest until you uh, get a couple of big wins behind you. So we, we go through trying to build our business with as much humility as possible. And even when we are doing bigger uh, rounds of fundraising, I hope we can continue to keep this mentality that says that we are not the dollars that we have in the bank. Uh, We are a collection of people who are trying to transform the way organizations communicate. How much money did you bootstrap with? Um, About a quarter million dollars. Got it. And so I'm not a sophisticated financial guy by any stretch, and I'm going to I'm going to prove that with the following question. And it's this. What is seed funding? Seed funding uh, depends who you ask. Um, I, I would say it is the capital that you raise when you have some traction not a ton of traction, some traction. Traction meaning a response from the market that says, hey, I think what you have built or are building is valuable. And I think that there's a way to monetize this thing. So it's usually a step after uh, what you might call angel funding or friends and family, um, which is where you're you know, working with uh, specifically with individuals who are helping write checks for your business. And then uh, usually when you think about seed mu- seed funding, it's um, a, a little bit uh, more institutional dollars, more uh, professional investors who who are participating in, in, in those rounds. So, so professional investors. So, are these um, are these VC firms? Are these financial institutions? VCs, exactly. Okay, so they're VCs. Wow. And out of four point two, how many different entities contributed to that? We have nine different uh, VCs on our cap table. I see. Wow. Then you said the next step is, and I don't remember, and I should, what is the next step then after seed funding? It's the series A. Series A, round number one. Yep. You know, that's, that's that moment that companies make um, a really big transition into maturing the organization and looking at the machines that they've built. They spent all these time uh, building machines. And I don't mean literal machines. I mean, different processes, different teams, different ways organizations operate. And they spent, they look at, at those machines and say, we have the foundation. It's now time to invest more dollars in each of our most critical functions and double, triple, quadruple what we are doing now. That's what you think about when you move to that Series A stage. And are you, and pardon me if you said this and it slipped by me, okay? So are you at that juncture right now where you're going for Series A? Yeah, um, there will be, uh, we, have, we have some really exciting news that will be coming out about our Series A very soon. Okay, and then are you at liberty to say how much money you're attempting to raise? Um, I'm happy to say that the second it's in the bank. <laughs> <laughs> And so I always say, here's my last question. And then I have a habit of asking like three more questions, but perfect. But you're a, a young guy. How did you get to be so smart? Ooh, how am I supposed to answer that? My parents fed me vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they, they didn't. I wish they did. 
So I can provide a, a couple of thoughts that will help anybody. First of all is I think people often underestimate the power of reading. And you go, ugh, reading like books. Well, maybe. I mean, you can also like do audiobooks or anything like that. But think about if you're interested in trees. Let's say that you're interested in trees and you read five books on the history, the science, the ecology of trees. You now know more about trees than 99% of the people that you'll meet. So, whoa, you became not an expert because it takes real time dedication to be an expert, but you're more of an expert than 99% of the people that you meet because you read five books. And then that grows on itself because then you have an area of expertise and people start coming to you, asking you questions and you say, well, I don't know that. I, I didn't read about that. And you can go and continue to follow, you continue to follow the trail, if you will, until you are building and building and building air expertise that truly makes you an expert. So I think people often underestimate how much knowledge is out there and how much knowledge we can acquire. And the second thing that, that I would say is, um, I think that if you almost had a counter, like you have a little clicker in your hand and, or let's say you have two, you have one in your right hand, one in your left. And whenever you had a thought about something you can do, something that, that would be that you want to achieve, something you're excited about, you click the one on the right. And whenever you have a thought about something that you can't do, something that's holding you back, a problem you're worried about, a stress, you click the one on the left. I think for a lot of people, that one on the left, the things that we can't do, monopolize most of our thoughts. So how can you take the time to step back, be at peace, which is hard, easier said than done, and continuously shift your thoughts from those can't do's to can do's. When you're thinking that way, it's much, much, much easier to go out and read that book, to go out and go for a run, to go out and do whatever, build the business you want to build because you have the time and you have the focus. That's usually what it's about. So um, I, I think that the path to, to being really excellent, we all have the resources at our, at our fingertips. We have our mindset. And uh, very fortunately, you know, many of us through access through the internet and you know, public libraries have the ability to go get those resources. You just got to combine those two things. Well, in part of your answer, you're talking about um, maybe not intended on your part, but you're talking about an emotional constitution that one has or doesn't have. And like you said, so many people focus on the negative part and fall into victimhood and become overwhelmed by the problems that they can't, they're unable to surmount that and then focus on kind of what can they do? And I think that that's one of the absolute key attributes of an entrepreneur for sure. I'm just doing the math here, not one of my strongest subjects, but you graduated in 2015, I think, undergrad, correct? That's right. I think I see where you're going with this. Yeah. So you're 27. That's right. Yeah. God bless, man. Yeah. There's, there's more to it than that. You are, you're gifted. And so, so you paid for your own school. What, what do your folks do in uh, Maryland? Uh, both of my folks are in real estate and my, uh, my father's also a lawyer. I see. In real estate as in investing in real estate? Mostly residential, uh, some commercial. On an investment or sales? Sales. I see. Got it. They did a good job and they, uh, you know, they made you pay for your own college. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that my dad has said a lot um, and has told me a lot as we were growing up, which is, you know, whenever you, and, you know, he'll 
tell me in the obviously second person, whenever I see you uh, coming up against a, an obstacle and I see you struggling, what I want to do is step back and watch you and protect you from a distance. I'm going to give you the chance to get through it. I'm going to give you the chance to figure it out. And I'm only going to swoop in when it is absolutely critical that I do. But I'm going to let you succeed. I'm going to let you fail. And having those experiences, you know, you get a couple of successes behind you and you start to feel like you can take on the world. And the only way that you can develop that is when you have the chance to either succeed or fail and you fail a couple times and then you win a couple more. Um, and I, I'm so grateful that my, my dad gave me the opportunity to have those at bats on my own and feel ownership over, you know, my wins and ownership over my losses. Fantastic training. And, um, you know, uh, also what a great way to manage employees, which inevitably you do because you learn from that. Well, we are hitting close to your uh, hard stop, which I want to be respectful of. You've left zero doubt in my mind that you are going to be incredibly successful in this endeavor. And, and I thank you very, very much for joining me. Roger, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the kind words and uh, really appreciate your time today. And once the Series 8 uh, closes, I'm going to be uh, calling you to get the number. Uh, please do. You can. I'll expect that call soon. <laughs> Good. All right, Mark. Thanks a lot. Take care, buddy. See you. Bye. Street Smart Success.